evening and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views, reviews and general stuff. Ah, and honestly, after last week, it's nice to be recording in a calm and measured fashion. We we haven't rediscovered all of the, the, the data that we lost. Not particularly minded to spend too much more time looking for it. I, it, it, it in the grand scheme of things, it, it's not that big of a deal. But we have some stuff for you this evening. We are not going to do the Artemis 1 thing because we're going to give that a go next week. We are going to spend quite a long time talking about the final episode of She-Hulk because, well, you'll, you'll hear the review in a bit. Uh, there's a lot to say, basically. And we do have another wonderful woman of science to tell you all about. And of course, there'll be some, not all of, but some, of the news from the world of Geek. But it's been a week since the final episode of She-Hulk aired. It's not been uncontroversial, much like every other episode of She-Hulk. This was recorded immediately after I watched it. So what you're getting here really are first impressions. I might let you know what my second, third and fourth impressions were after this. So, um, we forgot to blow the spoiler horn last week. I mean, I'm not that sorry because I was clearly going to do spoilers, but it's been mentioned. So I am aware I haven't blown the spoiler horn yet. I'm going to start with... A spoiler-free review of the final episode of She-Hulk. So we will be blowing the spoiler horn shortly. But at the moment, if you haven't seen the final episode of She-Hulk, you don't need to go anywhere. It's fine. There are no spoilers in this bit. Okay. Spoiler-free review of the final episode of She-Hulk. Goes something like this. <laughs> Oh, wow! Come on! That was sublime! Come on! I mean, the thing when she did the thing with the thing and the, the climbing down the thing. And Kevin! Oh, come on! Oh, that was so, so good! Honestly, I did not think, I did not think they would ever dare to be that meta in the MCU. And... Oh, come on. They absolutely stuck at the landing. I was a little bit worried halfway through. But my word. Oh, oh, oh excuse me. Oh, that was brilliant. Okay. Okay. I've been away. I've had a cup of tea. I've calmed down a little bit. My normal decorum has been restored. If you want to make sense of all of that, um, spoiler horn about to come up, and I'm going to explain. Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, so, She-Hulk episode 9. Why was it so good? Well, honestly, partly, I think, this was an episode of She-Hulk that... that if you told me that somebody had been inside my brain and taken out 
everything I think about not just She-Hulk, but the Hulk, the original Banner Hulk, and then stuck it in a blender and whizzed it up with just exactly the right amount of irreverence, and then taken that mixture and digitised it and put it on Disney+, Plus, and that this that was this episode, I'd almost believe you. So this this review, more than any of the others, comes to the very heavy, your mileage may vary, note. Because I'm old. I am 50, well, nearly 51 years old. Yeah, I know, it's terrifying. And when I was a kid, and I'm talking quite a young kid, one of, if not my absolute, favourite TV show was Bill Bigsby and Lou Ferrigno in The Incredible Hulk. I loved that show. Looking back, I'm surprised I was allowed to watch it. I mean, my mum was not a big fan of sci-fi. At the time, I was not allowed to watch Doctor Who, for example. Uh, <laughs> that turned out well. I was not allowed superhero comics. That also turned out well. But I was allowed to watch Wonder Woman. Brilliant show, Linda Carter. Woo! Good follow on Twitter as well, incidentally. Uh, and I was allowed to watch The Incredible Hulk. I've got no idea why. Uh, inconsistency is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I was allowed to watch Book Rogers too. I was allowed to watch Book Rogers, but not Doctor Who. Yeah. Looking back, I had some really inconsistent rules as a kid. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know that. Uh, what you do need to know is the opening sequence of that 1970s TV version of The Hulk. Well, I say 1970s. It actually was getting TV movies, I think, into the 90s. I think I, when was the trial of the Incredible Hulk? Maybe that. Maybe it was late 80s. Again, doesn't matter. All of that is Googleable. I might even, if I have time to do any this week, put that in the show notes. Y yes, I am aware there were no show notes last week. Give me a break. There was barely a show last week. So, you know, sorry, sorry, digressing. But the, no, the opening sequence was iconic. It featured um, a gravelly voiceover explaining how Dr. David Banner, because he was David Banner in the TV show, because the TV guys didn't like Stan Lee's... Um, Obsession with alliterative character names, or at least that's what they say these days. Actually, what I remember being told back in the 90s was that the TV people didn't think Bruce was a particularly heroic name. And as a lifelong Batman fan, all I can say to that is, hello, really? Anyway. It featured him getting his accidental dose of gamma radiation. And it was it was basically almost a shot-for-shot -shot copy, complete with you know the same style of computer and all all of that, um, featuring Jen instead of David <coughs> Bruce. And it was just brilliant. They even took their terrible CGI and made, which is still terrible, by the way and made the Jen She-Hulk look quite like the Lou Ferrigno Hulk. They gave her the same build as Lou Ferrigno. Uh, Jen's She-Hulk in, well, in She-Hulk, the comic, and in She-Hulk, the show, is, you know, quite conventionally attractive in terms of her form. Um, clearly, Lou Ferrigno was a massive bodybuilder. He was significantly more hench, significantly wider, and, you know, a good deal angrier. And they they... 
they CGI'd her to look more like that. Which, again, lovely touch. We even got the split screen at the end, uh, where as the voiceover's telling her that this is a creature of rage, uh, we got the close-up on the face, split screen, with with Jen on one side and She-Hook on the other, roaring at the camera. And I, I was eight years old again, and it was absolutely brilliant. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. So, you know, we started good, is what I'm saying. But having said all that, as noted earlier, I'm 51. I wonder how many people watching on Disney Plus got that reference. Answers, please, on a postcard, because, well, email, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. You could send a postcard to the shop, but don't. That would be weird. Who sends postcards anymore? But, you know, genuinely, I'm genuinely interested to know if anybody under 45 initially knew what that was. You might have looked it up uh, and, and now understand the genius of it. But genuinely, I'd like to know, really would like to know how many people got that reference. Because if you didn't, you probably spent the first couple of minutes of the episode thinking, what? Wait, what? What? And, and in that case, you probably had a very different reaction than I did. And hence my your mileage may vary comments earlier. So then we, f- we go back to Jen, who, of course, was arrested by damage control last week. Uh, having hooked out and been seen for what she was, an out-of-control hook. So she's she's in the same cell that Blonsky stroke Abomination was in earlier, because, honestly, it, that set was expensive to build. You know, why, why would you only use it in two episodes? So, you know, you've got to get... They built the whole set, you've got to get your money's worth. Come on. Nice to see them being thrifty. And more on that, too, later. And so she wakes up, and she's greeted by her her friends now from from the office, Mallory and Nikki and Plug, who are there to help. But it's tricky. It's tricky, right? Because they've got a plea deal, but it's the same, basically the same plea deal they gave Blomsky. They won't press charges, accepting that she was provoked and she's a Hulk. And so she did what Hulks do. She smashed. But if they're not going to press charges, then she needs to wear the same inhibitor that Blonsky's wearing. Well, not the same one, obviously. They're not sharing. she get one of her own, but you, you know what I mean. Which means she can never be She-Hulk again. And she takes the deal because she knows that if it goes to trial, she's getting locked up. So she takes the deal. And she goes home, except home is weird now because she's public enemy number one. Yeah, the, the the media campaign trashing her has gone massive. She's a talking point. People are coming out of the woodwork, including her her sleazy uh, XDA co-worker. Um, he says, oh, yeah, I dated her for years. She was psycho before she was the whole. All of that. Social media's ragging on her. Um, all the people who were dissing her on social media are kind of saying, yeah, you see, told you women can't be, aren't stable. All of that, all of that is going on. And because she can no longer be She-Hulk, she's lost her job. If you remember, all the way back at the beginning of the series, she was told, you are heading up our superhero law division. We want you here only as She-Hulk. When you're on the premises, when you're on work time, you are She-Hulk, not Jen. They didn't hire Jen. They hired She-Hulk. 
So she packs up her office and goes home. But Holmes, a tough place to be right now, besieged by journalists. And anyway, how's she paying for it? She has no job. So she does that thing that absolutely nobody in their 30s wants to do. She goes home, home, back to her parents, which is a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how many people you have been here. I never have. I left home at 18 when I went to university. Uh, after that, I went back home the first Christmas in my first year and found it incredibly uncomfortable to be back there. Uh, I went out, stayed out all night, came home to find my dad waiting up for me. That was not good. Uh, and I think me and my girlfriend, now wife, I think we stayed overnight in my dad's house maybe once after that. And, you know, that was it. The idea of having to move back home, I, it's such a privilege to not have to have done that. And I, I, ah, I, I know people who've had no choice and I know how much they're loving the idea. So to have had everything that she had and then to have to lose it all. And that's why you, and if you go back and live with your parents because you love them and, you know, you, you, it's a mutually beneficial, right? That's, that's one thing. But to have to go back because you failed, you've lost everything. You were so, you, you, you had it. You had the career and it's gone and you've got to go back and admit defeat and go back to uh, nightmare, absolute nightmare. And my heart goes out to Jen and anyone else who's had to do that. Jen, at least he's going to prove it can get better. So there's that. Although I'm not quite sure how anybody's going to end. No. Anyway, while she's at home, she's still working with Nikki to try and figure out how they're going to deal with the people who have done this to her. All the web bros who have operated this campaign, who hacked her phone. And bear in mind, she doesn't know about Josh and the Blood yet. And Jen is adamant. She's fixing this with the law. She's going to deal with this as Jen, the way Jen does things, as a lawyer, by the book. But living at home, still a nightmare. And she feels the need for a chat. Someone who can understand what she's going through, someone who's been through what she's going through. And there is only one person who knows that. Emile the Abomination Blomsky. So she packs a bag and she goes to the retreat. Meanwhile, Nikki and Plug are working on taking down the tech bros because Nikki got some footage, some embarrassing footage of Jen dancing stupidly as a student. Like any of us who were students in the era of social media, you know, have those videos on somebody's phone of us a little bit drunk or possibly totally wasted, uh, dancing like a fool in uh, some student party or other. Um, one of the perks of being as old as I am is that I did all my stupid stuff before the, in not just before the internet, but before camera phones. So there is very little evidence of my student stupidity, of which there was much, I have to say. Jen's younger than me, so sucks to be her. But Nikki uses this for good because she puts this video up on the troll site and they lap it up. And assuming that she's one of them, they invite her to an event for all of these 
anti-She-Hulk man babies, which is what I'm calling them. That's the nicest I'm going to be. And of course, Nikki can't go to that because she's a girl and it doesn't sound as though girls would be terribly welcome there. So she calls Plug and sends him. Meanwhile, back with Jen, she's at the retreat. She's wearing the white kind of scrubs things that everybody wears there because it's like a spa kind of place. And she's chatting with some of the other people that we met a couple of episodes ago. And she's wondering where Emil is. And they say, oh, he's down at the lodge. There's some kind of private event going on down there. Meanwhile, at, the, at, a, at a private event full of bros, Plug is floundering a little bit because he's a nice guy and he's finding it really hard to engage with these people and their attitudes. Uh, Nikki told him before he went into the meeting that um, he should always refer to women as females. And he finds that works. Um, in fact, his opening gambit is <laughs> females. Am I right? And all of these guys are busy talking about how it's not fair that this girl got powers and they didn't. And they're all trying to justify themselves by saying they'd be saying exactly the same thing if she was a man. And honestly, I swear, somebody was very aware of a particular group of fandom when they wrote this script because I've seen all of those comments on Twitter prior to this episode. So they nailed the people who wouldn't be their demographic quite accurately, I think. Anyway, Jen goes down towards the lodge where the private event is happening just as Plug is discovering who it is behind this hate campaign. And it turns out it's Tech Bro Todd, one of Jen's earlier dates. He is the Hulk King and he's got a surprise guest speaker for the event. Enter the Abomination, because yes, the clues are there. I, I will be upfront with you. I did not notice this. The clues were there. Actually, it was obvious if you look from the second plug walked into the private event that it was at Blonsky's place because you could see all the, the sort of slogans and stuff in the background. But it's not until uh, Blonsky as Abomination walks in that I figured it out because I'm quite slow. In my defense, I was very tired when I watched this for the first time. So maybe it's that. We'll say it's that. I'd, I'd, I'd literally just driven um, 230 miles and then done a full day at work. So, you know, I'm pleading that. And just, just as Blonsky's taking the stage, Jen walks in and sees him as Abomination on the stage talking to Todd. And she starts to put it all together and she realises and she is bemused and irritated, I think is how we can best put that. And she calls out Blonsky, she calls out Todd, and then things get a little bit wild, and then T Titania turns up, and then Bruce turns up, and it's all getting a little bit out of hand, and then Jen breaks the fourth wall and says that. It's what, and she's basically, what the heck is going on? This is not how the finale should be going. What, whose show is this? What's happening? And then the Disney Plus menu screen suddenly pops onto the screen and for just a fraction of a second I thought that I'd sat on the remote or something but now then the icon for She-Hulk kind of opens like a door 
and out pops Jen, who then climbs down um, the front of the menu screen and goes through another screen and ends up on the Marvel Cinematic Universe lot. And as She-Hulk, she did make a little comment about taking off the inhibitor first. And as She-Hulk, she goes into the writer's room where they're coming up with the most ridiculous explanations. And, yeah, he basically calls them out. What, what are you doing? This is all... Yeah, oh, it turns out, I, I, I forgot to mention this, the whole blood thing, that was for Todd. Todd actually stole the blood so he could turn himself into a Hulk, which he has done by this point. I, I forgot to mention that. And the writers are like, oh, this is what Kevin wanted. Clear reference to Kevin Feige, 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 however you pronounce I still don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. Let's just call him Kevin. Uh, and so Jen says, right, I'm going to go and see Kevin. And the writer's like, you can't go see Kevin. And she says, watch me. And so off she goes in search of Kevin. And she barges into the MCU studio's offices and is stopped by the intern at the desk who says, uh, you just need to sign this NDA, uh, which she does. Uh, that was absolutely hilarious. Uh, the Again, this may have been a reference that people who don't hang out obsessively in comics kind of forums and comics spaces in, an, in a really unhealthy healthy way like I do. Uh, but the Marvel NDA non-disclosure agreement is legendary in comics. And she's it's on an iPad and she's scrolling through it. And it's like she's scrolling after page after page after page after page after page. Uh, and I, I, I howled like a howler monkey at that. I thought that was hilarious. I don't know how many other people got the reference. I don't care, actually. If they wrote that joke just for me, I appreciated it. Comics Twitter also appreciated it. So there's that. So she signs the NDA and she goes in to meet with Kevin. And it turns out Kevin is a bot. Yep, Kevin is a computer. And so she argues with the computer about how this is a terrible ending and how a much better ending would be like this. And she sits down and starts telling him everything that's wrong with the MCU. And it was hilarious. It is the most meta thing I have ever seen. There are only two characters that have done live action so far that could have got away with it. One is her, She-Hulk, Jen. The other is Deadpool. The only other character in the whole of Marvel that could get away with it is Gwenpool, who is a character we may talk about on another day. She hasn't made live action yet, and I doubt she ever will. Now, I've seen a lot of criticism online about this being too meta and too much from people who, I promise you, if Deadpool had done it first, would have lapped it up. And I like that we get Jen going this meta first, before Deadpool 3 gets anywhere near coming out, because She-Hulk did it in the comics first. So... We'll take that. Thanks very much. So in the end, she explains that what she would really like is, right, first of all, let's not have Todd Hulk out. That's ridiculous. It's his hate that's his crime. Yeah, Hulk is not the problem. And so, yeah, OK, that gets erased. Uh, second, uh, can we not be having Blomsky be the abomination, please? Uh, that ruins his art. All, all she wants is for him to take some accountability for his actions. Because uh, it turns out he didn't know about the tech bros and stuff. Uh, he was it was just a hired gig. He'd been doing paid speaking engagements as abomination uh, in violation of his parole. And, you know, she just wants him to take accountability for that because, you know, she's Jen. She's a lawyer. He signed. He, he, you know, he's violated his parole. That's, you know, 
that's a very gen thing. Uh, and also, Bruce coming back from space just to save the day? Whose show is this? No. So Bruce gets removed. and yeah. All of that's corrected. Uh, the, the, the Kevin bot... Uh, there is, Kevin is an acronym. It stands for something. I can't remember, and I can't be bothered to look it up. Google. Uh, and so then she goes back, and we cut to the end, uh, where you know Todd's in cuffs, and Blonsky is signing the thing, saying he acknowledges he he, he violated his parole, and he's going back to prison for twelve years because that's the consequence of violating his parole. Uh, Nikki and Pug are all very happy. Everything's all very sorted. And so then we go back to Jen at home with her family and her extended family and a visitor that Jen said she could stand to see again. Uh, she said when she was talking to Kevin that she'd quite like to see Matt Murdock again because, uh, you know, very satisfying. And there he is uh, around the dinner table with the Walters family. Uh, enjoying, uh, it looks like a kind of barbecue kind of deal. Um, and, you know, he keeps grinning and kind of saying, yeah, I'm just I'm just staying for a week. I'm just staying for a week. As Jen's dad keeps asking about, you know, children and stuff. And, you know, Jen's quite embarrassed by this, but clearly very happy to have him around, if you know what I'm saying. And, yeah, it's a really nice, cute ending. And we finish with... She-Hulk going back to work as a lawyer, as a She-Hulk. And, you know, she's been hounded by the media all the way through this episode. And in the final bit, she is climbing the steps to the courthouse. And she's stopped by a reporter who says, you know, what have you got to say to your, to people? And she says, just understand, if you break the law and if you hurt people, then I'm coming for you. And the reporter says, what, as, as a lawyer or a She-Hulk? And she smiles and says, both, which is the point Matt Murdock was making to her a couple of episodes ago. And then the reporter asks her who she's wearing. And Jen kind of disgustedly walks off. And the reporter says, and there she goes, the difficult diva of law, because that's the kind of nonsense that women have to put up with these days. And I'm, I have loved it being called out all the way through this show. Still loving it. So. That's it. And I have spoken for, for 25 minutes on this now, which is longer than I meant to after last week's She-Hawk marathon. But I loved this final episode so much. It's the most comic booky of all the Marvel TV shows. Nothing has been so close to a comic book as this. Certainly nothing has been so close to its comic book as this. If you check the scores on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a fantastic critic score and a terrible audience score. The terrible audience score, I think, is, you see, I hate to say that, I really hate to say this, but it has clearly been review bombed. I'm not going to argue that this was a perfect show. Um, the, the CGI alone loses it at about 10% off Rotten Tomatoes for me, but that still gives it 90%, which is actually higher than the critics score. But honestly, an awful lot of people hate watching this. If you watch the first couple of episodes and it wasn't for you, that's fine. You know, you're allowed to not like things. It's cool. But if you watch the first couple of episodes and hated it and then watched the other seven episodes just so you could complain about them on Twitter and give them one star reviews. That says more about you than the show, dude. And honestly, 
If you did that, you are the villain of this season. Okay, that's Todd. You don't be Todd. Don't be Todd. If you don't like something, just ignore it. If you don't like the idea of a female Hulk and a female Thor, don't watch them. Unless somebody you trust tells them they're, they're good. In which case, give them a go. And if you like them, brilliant. And if you don't, don't watch them again. That's allowed. You can do that. You can even say, you know what? Didn't like it. Not for me. Moving on. But to constantly go on about it. I haven't mentioned Zack, Zack Snyder's Justice League for what? A year now? I didn't like it. It's not for me. Fine. Other people did. I'm glad they enjoyed it. There you go. That's all it takes. Looking back over the season, I've enjoyed the humour. I've enjoyed the characterisation. I've enjoyed the attitude. I've enjoyed the lack of reverence for Marvel, which had begun to take itself more than a little bit too seriously. And I've enjoyed the performances. Overall, above everything, Tatiana Maslany as Jen stroke She-Hulk has been sublime. As I expect, I'm not surprised by this. Um, Tim Roth as Emil Blonsky. Just, just wonderful. And all... All the other performers, the good guys and the bad guys, Jamila Jamil as, as Titania, just just over the top and ridiculous when they needed to be, subtle and nuanced when they needed to be, it worked. It absolutely worked. I am going to be very cross if we don't get a season two. It's clearly been signposted, no movie, because uh, Kevin said so. Uh, as Jen's leaving Kevin's little room, uh, he says, you know, maybe, maybe you're ready for the big screen. And Jen kind of turns around and goes, really? I said, <laughs> and she goes off. And the references to how expensive the, sh- the CGI is. Uh, yeah, there, was, there was a bit where um, she's talking to Kevin and he says, you know, I need you to turn back into Jen. And she says, why? Well, because you're expensive. And can you do it? while the camera's not on you, please. Because obviously seeing that transformation is make, doing that transformation is also expensive in CGI. Just just wonderful, wonderful meta nonsense like that. It wouldn't work in every show. Uh, it would have been wholly inappropriate in Loki or well absolutely inappropriate in something like Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, you couldn't have got away with it in one division. But here it works. Because that's the kind of character this is. Charlie Cox it was wonderful to see him back as Daredevil, stroke Mac Murdoch. I'm so looking forward to Daredevil Born Again. I'm hoping for a Jen cameo in that, uh, just as, as Matt's been in this. Uh, I don't think She-Hulk necessarily fits in that show, and I don't particularly want to see She-Hulk there. But I'd like to see Jen, just as a as a nod, as, a, as another lawyer. So, yeah. If I were the kind of show that gave things star ratings... Five um, or ten, depends what we're rating it out of. Full marks is what I'm saying. Are there things I would improve? Actually, now, taking the show as a whole, no. I know I've whined and complained about the quality of the CGI all the way through, and I stand by it. The CGI is not good. It just isn't. It's not up to Marvel standards. But then they made a joke out of it, and that was funny. So all is forgiven, MCU. All is forgiven about She-Hulk. There are things, other things, not happy about still, but She-Hulk, all is forgiven. Great show. 
as I say, if you haven't got Disney Plus, go and see a mate who has and take pizza and watch it. Or get the free trial and binge watch it. Pizza still works there. Or, you know, at some point, no doubt, it will be available on DVD because Disney does love money. So, you know, watch it. Find a way to watch it legally. Please do not commit piracy. I would never endorse that. <clears throat> so we'll leave that there. We're going to talk about Andor next week because this is now 31 minutes of review, which is much more than the show ever really wanted to do in one go. And we've done it twice now. So that's it for She-Hook. Uh, we'll talk about Andor next week. Spoilers, loving it. And yeah, I think we've probably better move on, haven't we? Yeah, no, let's do that. Let's move on. Okay, well, where to next? Well, I think we'll leave the news and stuff till the very end because, because you know, that will enable us to be a little bit more up to date. You never know what might happen. So we will move on to our wonderful Woman of Science, a segment that has been appallingly neglected over the last few weeks. That changes right now. Uh, still no jingle. I really should sort that out. Maybe for next week. But not now, because now I have a wonderful woman of science to tell you about. And we're going to go to a field of science that I think has been very much underrepresented on this show until now, which is paleontology. Because let's be honest, every single geek I know starts with an obsession with spaceships and dinosaurs. And we haven't given dinosaurs nearly enough love. So, of course, this week, our wonderful woman of science is Mary Anning. Born on the 21st of May, 1799. Uh, she left us on the 9th of March, 1847. Uh, by my maths, that makes her in her 40s. And that's as accurate as my math maths is getting. And she was uh, an English fossil collector, fossil dealer, uh, and I think genuinely deserves the title of paleontologist. And she became, she became known around the world for the discoveries she made in the cliffs along the English Channel, particularly at Lyme Regis in Dorset in southwest England. If you are a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? International listener. Uh, Dorset is, if you look at the south coast of England, right at the far left hand side, you've got a bit a thing that sticks out into the sea, looks a bit like a leg. That's Cornwall. If you come about halfway along that leg, you're into Dorset. Um, it's a wonderful little county. I like it very much. And it is famous for its coastal fossils. The, the geology there is particularly good for fossils, partly because it's the, 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 the Blue Lias and um, Charmouth Mudstone Cliffs erode really quite quickly. So the fossils which are caught in those rocks literally drop out the cliff onto the beach and you can a very popular pastime in that part of the world now is just wandering along the beach looking for fossils they actually in all the tourist stuff now call this area the jurassic coast for goodness sake but they probably wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for mary anning she wasn't the first person to spot that there were fossils on the beaches of lime but she was the person who made them 
important. She realised the importance of them and treated them as more than just trinkets. She wasn't from a wealthy family or, or a particularly academic family. Uh, her father, Richard Anning, um, was a cabinet maker and a carpenter, so a skilled tradesman. Um, but he supplemented his income by digging into the coastal cliffs near the town of Lyme Regis, where she was born, uh, and selling the fossils that he found there into uh, to, to tourists. So there was a market for this stuff. Her mother was Mary Moore, um, known as Molly. Um, Mary was one of a number of children. Her parents had ten children altogether. But tragically, as was not that uncommon at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries, a lot of them died. Um, the first child, who was called Mary, was born in 1794. Um, she was followed by another daughter who died almost immediately. Um, then there was a brother, Joseph, who was born in 1796. Uh, there was another son, born in 1798, but he died in infancy. Uh, and in December in 1798, met the original Mary, then four years old, um, was killed. And this is horrible. She was killed after a clothes caught fire, um, possibly while she was adding wood shavings onto the fire. Um, this was actually reported in the Bath Chronicle. We've got a citation for this. 27th of December, 1798. Uh, and I quote, a child four years of age of Mr. R. Anning, a cabinet maker of Lyme, was left by the mother for about five minutes in a room where there were some shavings. The girl's clothes caught fire and she was so dreadfully burned as to cause her death. That's that's hideous. Um, so our Mary Anning was born five months later and she was named Mary after her dead sister, which is not creepy or morbid at all. Um, she was not the last. If you're doing the maths, you will know she was not the last child to be born to the Annings, but none of the others survived for very long. Um, I think the, the 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 most successful lived to about two, uh, to the point that I cannot find names for these children. So, you know, yay, the 19th century. So only our Mary Anning and her brother Joseph, uh, who was three years her senior, lived into adulthood. Um, and th this sounds appallingly tragic, and it is. Of course it is. Um, but it also is not particularly unusual. Uh, yeah, this, this rate of childhood mortality was normal at the time. Almost half the children born in, in the United Kingdom in the 19th century were dead before they were five. And Lyme Regis, with, if you've been to Lyme, it's a beautiful little seaside town now. Uh, but back then in the early 19th century, it was cramped, it was crowded. Um, and the deaths of infants from, you know, preventable diseases, well, diseases that are preventable now, like smallpox and measles, were just so common as to be normal. So, you know, yay vaccines, I think is my point there. Uh, but, you know, Anning did live to adulthood and she's become kind of, it's difficult to know now how much of what we know of Mary Anning is true and how much of it is legend. Um, example, uh, 19th of August, 1800, Anning was 15 months old. Um, now, according to local legend, she was being held by a neighbour called Elizabeth Haskins, who was standing with two other women uh, under an elm tree watching a horse show being put on by a travelling troupe of, you know, entertaining horse riders, when the tree was struck by lightning and all three women were killed. 
So obviously there was a crowd there. The crowd rushed the infant and Anning. Uh, she'd been 15 months, I think I said, um, home. And she was revived in a bath of hot water. Um, the local doctor said that this was a miracle. Anning's family said she'd always been a sickly baby before this lightning strike. But afterwards, she seemed to blossom. And for years afterwards, members of the community would look at this child, this, this curious, intelligent and lively child and say, oh, that's because she got struck by lightning. I've not been able to find a reliable contemporary source for this, but it's a brilliant story. So I'm going to I'm just going to assume it's true. Uh, now, you would have thought, perhaps, that somebody who went on to be so influential in the field of paleontology was a very highly educated person. But of course, this is the early 19th century when she's growing up. And so as a girl and as a not wealthy girl, Anning's education was extremely limited. She was able to go to the Sunday school at the Congregationalist Church that her family attended. Um, and this presumably is where she learned to read and write. Now, Congregationalist doctrine is really important here. Obviously, early 19th century England, quite a religious place. The Church of England doctrine at the time kind of didn't think that educating the poor was important. The Congregationalist Church did. So that may have had uh, a huge influence. It may have been a huge advantage to her. Uh, and perhaps even is one of the reasons why her, her desire to learn more was taken seriously. Uh, we do know that her prized possession as a child was a bound copy of the Dissentist Theological Magazine and Review, which must have been a barrel of laughs. Um, but the family's pastor, the Reverend James Wheaton, uh, had had essays um, published in that, one of which insists that God had created the world in six days, as it says in the book of Genesis, uh, and the other urging dissenters to study the new science of geology, which very definitely was beginning to show that the Earth was significantly older than that and had taken significantly longer to form than that. So you've got in her church, in her, in, you know, in the circles in which Anning moved, you've got the, the beginnings of that, that conversation, I'm not going to call it a conflict, the conversation between literalist interpretations of the Bible and the new observational sciences. So again, she didn't go to university or anything like that, but she's surrounded by this scientific inquiring culture. Now, you add to this, by the late 18th century, Lyme Regis was already a popular seaside resort. I will point out that my great literary love, Jane Austen, sets a very important scene in her best novel, Persuasion, on the cob at Lyme Regis, when uh, Louisa leaps for the arms of Captain Wentworth and he misses and she falls and is very seriously injured and has to spend some time in Lyme Regis being nursed back to health. It's a key plot point in the story uh, and only possible because it was only set there because Lyme, by the time Austin was writing, was a popular tourist destination. Many people wanted to, as she puts it in the book, see Lyme. As somebody based in Harrogate, which is a very touristy town, I am aware that it's a truth universally acknowledged 
that tourists in possession of a good fortune must be in want of tourist tet. And even before Anning's time, uh, locals were selling what they were calling curios to visitors. Um, these were usually fossils with local, you know, called by local names. So snake stones and anamites, devil's fingers, bellamites, uh, vertiberries, uh, which is a really cool name for vertebrae. And because science was only just beginning to get a foothold in British culture, these were often attributed uh, to have uh, you know, curative or magical properties. As I said, one of the people who was supplementing their income by selling this stuff to tourists was Mary's father. And she would often go with her father and brother on fossil hunting expeditions. It was, you know, this was this was not scientific inquiry. This was earning a bit of cash. And Anning eventually ended up with a sort of fossil shop in the town of Lyme, which she ran in order to make a living. That's what she was doing. And, you know, this was not without risk. One of the reasons it's so easy to find fossils along the Jurassic coast is the cliffs are very crumbly. And so the fossils will literally just drop out of them. But if you've got very crumbly cliffs, then what you also have is a metric shed load of cliff falls. And if you happen to be standing underneath one of these, there's a very strong chance you're going to get hit in the head by really heavy rocks. This is not conducive to a long and healthy life. You know, Anning's persistence in this dangerous pursuit attracts its attention. Uh, there's an article from the Bristol Mirror, uh, which describes her as a persevering female who has gone for, year, go, for years gone daily in search of fossil remains of importance at every tide. And perhaps, again, because she comes from this learning culture, she starts to, you know, she, look, she doesn't collect this stuff and sell it. She starts to learn about it and she starts to grow a reputation. Um, and she continued to make, you know, really important finds. Um, on the 10th of December, 1823, uh, is kind of the, the day that made her name. Because uh, that's when she found the first complete Plesaurus skeleton. Um, five years later, in 1828, uh, she was also responsible for finding the first British example of the flying reptiles that we now call pterosaurs. And I'm not, actually sure, I'm not sure it's correct to call them reptiles. I might be wrong about that. Uh, but anyway, that's a subject for another time. Um, they were called flying dragons um, when they, you know, sort of popularly. And that's certainly what the British Museum called the specimen that she found uh, in 1828 when it put it on display. Uh, and then she found a... Uh, now, I'm reading this from my notes and it just occurred to me. I've never actually said this word out loud. Um, she found a fish skeleton in 1829, um, which... OK, look, it's spelled S-Q-U-A-L-O-R-A-J-A. -A, and I'm going to go with Squalorja, but I don't know if that's right. So please forgive me if you know anything about paleontology and I've just made your ears bleed. And, you know, as I say, she came from this learning culture. And despite her, you know, sort of fairly sparse education, she was reading as much of the scientific literature on paleontology as she could get. And she was, you know often, you know, sort of copying papers out by hand that she'd borrowed. She, she seems to have been a true autodidact. And, you know, at a time when you could become one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about a subject, if you just took the time and, and care to read about it, because what was known was not that much. So it's something that, you know, a, a person could hold in their head. I mean, I don't think you could hold the whole of paleontology in the head of one person now. Then you could. 
So, you know, she gets very knowledgeable about this stuff. Um, she starts to, to do technical illustrations. Um, and she also started to dissect modern animals in both in, in you know, sort of fish, cuttlefish and that kind of thing, so that she could get a better understanding of the anatomy of some of the fossils on which she was working. It's extraordinary stuff. This this relatively uneducated woman doing all of this at this time. It's truly, truly groundbreaking. Uh, a, a socialite, Lady Harriet Sylvester, um, the widow of the former recorder of the City of London, uh, came as a tourist to Lyme in 1824. She notes um, the extraordinary thing in this young woman is that she has made herself so fully acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. Um, as she goes on, uh, it's clearly attracting a lot of attention. In 1826, um, Anning managed to get enough money together to buy a home with a glass storefront to use as her, you know, for her shop, uh, which she called Anning's Fossil Depot. And the business had become important enough that the move of premises was covered in the paper, uh, which noted that the shop had a fine ichthyothos skeleton on display. And so she's becoming a destination. Um, she's attracting collectors from Europe and America coming to line. Um, the very famous geologist George William Featherston Hoare, which again I've never heard said out loud, uh, he came, uh, he's quite a big noise in early geology, he called Anning a very clever, funny creature, because you could be patronising like that in the early 19th century. And he bought uh, fossils from Anning, which then went to the uh, New York Lyceum of Natural History in 1827. The King of Saxony, Frederick Augustus II, visited her shop in 1844 uh, and bought an ichthyosaur skeleton for his natural history collection. Um, his aide, Carl Gustav Karras, um, said that uh, the shop uh, had the most remarkable petrifications of, and fossil remains. You know, then this is this is a guy who hangs out with a king who is interested in this stuff and so has seen the most impressive stuff there is to see in Europe. And he found it impressive. So, you know, pretty good. Uh, and in all of this time, she's in contact with the wider scientific community. Um, seems to have been well respected by her peers in paleontology. Remember, this is at a time when women were not supposed to be doing science. Women were not taken seriously. And yeah, clearly, clearly she was. So it's a shame that she died so young. I, I wonder what else she could have achieved, how she might have advanced the science further uh, because she had such, you know, she because she had access to such a remarkable source of fossils, which is still there on the Jurassic coach, but also she had the knowledge she had the learning, um, but it was not to be. Uh, she developed breast cancer uh, at the age of 47 and died on March 9th, 1847. Um, because of her illness, uh, her fossil work had, had sort of tailed off. And she got a bit of a bum deal here. Uh, she was taking laudanum uh, as... Uh, you know, to, to deal with the pain of her cancer. Uh, but the gossip became that, you know, she had a bit of a drinking problem. But the re it didn't affect the regard in which Anning 
was held by the, the, the sort of scientific, particularly the geological conclusion. In 1846, um, when they discovered that she had cancer, uh, the Geological Society raised money from its members to help with her expenses. Um, and the newly created Dorset County Museum made Anning uh, an honorary member. Not a full member. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. She was a girl. Uh, but at least, you know, there was that local recognition. So the local gossip about her having a drinking problem seems to not have affected her reputation with the people who mattered. Uh, she was buried on the 15th of March in the churchyard of St. Michael's, which is the local parish church to Lyme. Um, and to this day, uh, there is still the Mary Annings window in St. Michael's Church. That was donated by, um, at least in part, by the Ge uh, Geographical Society. And it was unveiled in 1850. And it shows the six corporal acts of mercy, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting prisoners and the sick. And... Beneath it, there is an inscription which reads, and I quote, This window is sacred to the memory of Mary Anning of this parish, who died 9th March, A.D. 1847, and is erected by the vicar and some members of the Geological Society of London in commemoration of her usefulness in furthering the science of geology, and also her benevolence of heart and integrity of life. Do you know what? I really hope I earn such, an, such a, a eulogy. She was a remarkable woman, as I hope I have made clear. And really, a lot of her work is still the foundation of paleontology to this day. So, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the brilliant, the great Mary Anning, a truly wonderful woman of science. So that was Mary Anning uh, and another wonderful woman of science next week, I hope, uh, as I start to get everything that I lost in the great data loss of 2022 re-recorded. But now I think uh, we're running out of time, actually. Uh, so I think perhaps I should move on to some news, except I haven't got any. I, basically, I've been extraordinarily busy the last week. Uh, if you've been looking at the Destination Dean's website, you will notice it has not been updated for a bit. That is because I have not had time to do it. Uh, so bear with me on that one, I think, is what I'm saying. Uh, so beyond that, what is there to talk about? Well, and or I'm going to talk about next week, because believe me, I have got a lot to say. I am just going to briefly dive in and mention the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime, because it's nice to talk about something that's not on Disney Blinkin Plus. I will be honest, I think I've said this before on the show, I had no interest in watching this whatsoever. I've never really been that interested in pre-Lord of the Rings Middle Earth. Uh, I tried to read The Silmarillion many times and just can't get into it. So I thought, oh, they're doing anything of it. Uh, never mind. Then it got so much hate online that I watched the first episode and I quite liked it, actually. Honestly did. And then, you know, other stuff happened. There was She-Hulk to watch for a start and it didn't go back to the Rings of Power. I have now corrected that omission, and I'm about, I mean now, four issues, four, four issues, four episodes in. Wow, this is good, isn't it? It's really good. I don't want to get into the controversy, the, the, the faux controversy, about whether it's okay to have black hobbits and whether it's okay for Galadriel to have a sword. I don't care, all right? Those are production decisions, storytelling decisions that have been made. If people don't like them, that's fine. You're allowed to not like them. 
But I ain't going to gripe about any of that. Not least because, I, as I say, I don't care. But also because that's not what's interesting about it. My word, it's well made, isn't it? And what I particularly like is the way it delves into character, because that is something that Tolkien did. If you want to make an adaptation that is very, very true to Tolkien, you want to know a lot about the characters, because Tolkien went on at length about the backstory of everyone. I'm not going to blow the spoiler horn for this. It's not spoilery enough. But, you know, just to be aware, I'm about to mention a couple of things that happened in the show. They're not particularly plot significant. Take, for example, Galadriel. Uh, as she rides a horse across the beach in Numenor. Now, you know, that is a thing that happens in the show. I'm not revealed any plot there, hence no spoiler horn. Because what actually mattered about that was the sheer unadulterated joy that we see on the face of Galadriel as she gallops this horse across the sand. It's a brief scene, but it's a scene which shows us something about Galadriel's character. And I mention it because I've seen quite a lot of comment online about, well, what was the purpose of this scene? Well, that was it for anyone who was wondering. The purpose of that scene was to show us that Galadriel loves to ride horses. She loves to go fast. And that tells us something about her character that is useful to know. There's, it's not a reckless streak, but it's a streak of joy at the thrill of something. And that reveals something deeper, I think, in Galadriel's character. So there's that. Uh, I They haven't got back to Middle-earth yet. They're, I left it as they're about to go back to mainland Middle-earth. Uh, away from the island of Numenor and, you know, to deal with stuff. No more spoilers than that. Uh, I'm also loving the Hobbits. The proto-Hobbit society I am absolutely adoring. So there's that too. So I accept if, you know, the deviations that they've made from the things that Tolkien had stated in the law, if that annoys you to the point you can't enjoy the show, then okay, fine. I am sorry about that because you are genuinely missing out on something great. And so, to the Geek Community Notice Board, I have got nothing to tell you about. At all. I am going to mention Thought Bubble again. I'm going to keep mentioning Thought Bubble. You need to go to Thought Bubble, okay? Go to the website, thoughtbubblefestival.com, and get your tickets bought. It's a little bit cheaper if you go in cosplay, and cosplay is always fun. But however you do it, make sure that you do not miss Thought Bubble, okay? It's too good a weekend to miss. Of course, we'll be spending Thought Bubble tied to a table. Not literally tied to a table, that would be odd. Uh, but standing behind the Destination Venus table. Uh, I, I'm hopelessly not ready for this yet. But again, you know, that's kind of typical. I think I have to accept. So, thoughtbubblefestival.com for more information about what's, gonna get, what's going on, but also to get your tickets for what is the best weekend of the year, bar none. Just trust me, okay? Just trust me. That is all we've got time for this week. So, we'll be back next week with Andor and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay safe and stay geeky. We will see you soon.